Hello, and welcome to the Fashionable Journey podcast. I am your host, Gwen Miller Seto, and I am so excited to be bringing this show to you. For the past two decades, I have had the privilege of working at some amazing companies with incredibly talented people. Since I love a deep conversation and have a true curiosity, I started this podcast to connect with others and chat about their journeys with a focus on their careers in fashion. These are their stories to give you a behind-the-scenes look at working in the industry and related fields. We may start out talking about fashion, but who knows where the conversation will go. So whether you are just starting out, well into your career, or just curious, it's never too late for a fashionable journey. And thank you for joining us. My guest today is a friend and former colleague, Jackie Hughes. Jackie is a creative in every sense of the word, plus she is also an influencer, professor, and self-proclaimed knit nerd. We go back almost 20 years, actually I think it's been 20 years, and she knew me at my first job in the industry. So hence the comfort and familiarity is there, which is why we both end up being real about this industry we love so much. So on to the episode. Hi, Jackie. (laughs) Hi, Gwen. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm so happy you're here. I've been really looking forward to this conversation because we overlapped at two different companies, but um, I actually don't know your story. I don't know how you got started or anything. So can we start there? Can we start with when you were a kid? Like, did you always know that you wanted to be a designer or a creative Oh my gosh, it's so funny that you asked that because I've been thinking a lot about that lately as I'm, you know, we're all pondering, you know, what our next moves are and the way that the world is right now. And I know I, I was always a creative person, but I was never like a fashionista, um, believe it or not. <laughs> and, mo- and when I talk to co- most of my colleagues, most people I've worked with like over the years have always said, oh, I've wanted to be a fashion designer since I was this little and I used to sew and I used to draw clothes and I'm just not that person. And I used to feel really insecure about it. But now it's starting to make sense. The one thing I've always loved is art. I've always, I used to make art all the time. I was like voraciously um, swallowing any kind of art education that I could get going to museums. Um, I did like clothes and I liked to shop, but it wasn't like a conscious decision of mine. Um, from an early age. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Sylvania, Ohio, which is right outside Toledo. I'm a Midwesterner. Okay. okay. Yes, I'm, I'm a Midwesterner. Proud Midwesterner. Midwesterner. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I did know that I, 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 I did learn at a very early age that I didn't want to stay there. It was really boring. I mean, I, I had a great childhood. It was amazing. And I have great, great family. And I still am in contact. And everything is awesome. But I, um, yeah, I wanted to get out wanted to experience something else. Yeah. Small town life was not for me. As soon as I stepped foot into museums or ate a certain kind of food um, and knew that there was more out there, I was always a very curious kid. I would say that too. So I would go back and say, I was definitely into reading, writing, and art, like create that kind of creativity and languages. I was much more, you know, I took French really early. I took it all through school. So I definitely is that part of the brain was working, but it wasn't necessarily directing me towards fashion all the time. Um, I would say so. And then, so I studied art all through um, school. I had a great teacher in junior high school who identified me as having talent, God bless him. And then I was kind of put into like 
honors art classes or what have you. And I did that all through high school into AP art. And it was only when I was looking at colleges that I found Kent State mm-hmm. and they had this fashion design program that people were, t- they, we were talking about. I'm like, oh, I like art and I like fashion. I like to shop. <laughs> so I think I'm going to try this. It was totally an 18 year old decision. Totally. <laughs> um, and that's what I did. And I, I ended up loving it. And how was the program at Kent State? I know. It was that. great. Well, now I teach there, which I'm sure we're going to go into again. So I'm a super huge proponent of Kent State fashion. Mm-hmm. At the time, um, this, the program was really young. Um, I was one of maybe, I think there were, maybe my, my class started out with 50 people and we ended up graduating in design like 13 people. It was really small, but it was good. Um, and I always say that what I learned the most about is I loved Kent because it was a, a liberal education. So I had like, and you had the same experience, right? Because you went to Wisconsin. I went to Wisconsin. Yeah. And then it's affiliated with FIT. So it was three years at Wisconsin and one year. I, see, I wish we could have done that. Now they do that at Kent. They have a whole New York studio and all that stuff. But at the time I was just like an Ohio girl studying fashion before the internet might I had. So it wasn't <laughs> like I had <laughs> dating myself. Um, but I felt really prepared going in. I mean, it was a, I had great teachers. I felt really nurtured. It was, it was great. I had no idea what I was doing. And it was literally like I graduated, had a fashion show. I think I went to New York for us. We had a, like a fabric buying tour that we went on in the spring. It was the first time I was ever in New York and I got bit by the bug. Yep. As soon as I, I, can, I can remember like getting out of the car and being like, oh my God, this place is amazing. And from then on, it was like, okay, I'm going to come here. Um, after I graduate, no idea how I would figure that out, but I did. And, um, so I think I spent my senior year spring break. I went, I went on a buying tour and then I was reaching out to every random, again, this is before the internet, this is before LinkedIn. So (laughs) I was just calling random people and it ended up being my, my cousin's girlfriend's cousin owned a private label sweater company. And they were willing to um, give me an internship, a paid internship for the summer. And that was good enough for me. So a week after I graduated, I got on a plane with a suitcase and, and moved. Dang, amazing. Do you remember the name of that company? Yeah, it's still there. Ralsey Group Limited. Awesome. It's actually a big company now. It, it's owned by Lee and Fung. But at the time, it was owned by a couple um, who were very kind people. Um, and at that time, I was just like, I need a job. I didn't take, so I think, um, I don't know if you mentioned this yet, but I'm a sweater designer by trade. I'm a knit nerd, self-proclaimed. And that was a sweater company. So at the time I didn't even know. I was just like, I just need a fashion job. I don't care. I just want to be in New York. And so they offered me this internship. I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was $250 a week, which I thought was a lot of money in 1994. (laughs) And, um, which it wasn't, but, um, but it, I, you know, that's what I needed. That's all I needed to get there. And so, yeah, I had a friend that I, that had graduated that I stayed with and I, you know, I managed to work it out, but it was a sweater company and my boss was very kind and just literally taught me everything I need to know about sweater design on the job. I remember her dumping out. She had come back from a shopping trip um, and, and had like bags of clothing as we do. And she just dumped it on the table and she was like, you're going to start specking these garments like right now, specking meaning measure, you, you know what that means. But for those, anybody who doesn't explain it to the, to the- <laughs> specking is a way of life where you measure every single detail of every garment. And that's actually how I learned really well how to design sweaters. And that's still how I teach people today. 
Like if I have a, uh, an assistant that comes in, it's never done sweaters, which I'm totally fine with. I'll literally give them a, t- a bunch or I'll tell them to go into their closet and look at the sweaters, start measuring the sweaters, start understanding how things are constructed. So and how it all started. So when you were at Kent State, did they have like a full fashion knit program or a sweater program? They did not have a program. They do now, by the way, which is robust, which we okay. can talk about. But um, no, they had a knitting class you could take, machine knitting. I didn't even take it. <laughs> I had no experience whatsoever. For the internship, did they hire you as an assistant designer? Or? They did. Okay. They did. So it was like May I started, and by September they offered me a full-time job as an assistant designer. And it was just a small private label company, but... I also like to tell people it was a great place to learn. Like I feel in, in hindsight, I feel so lucky because at the time private label means we did sweaters for all different kinds of brands, sizes, uh, price points. And again, this is way back in the nineties. So the limited brand did not have its own design team. Express did not have its own design team. We did all their sweaters or not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, there was, there was like, um, plus size, you know, I learned plus size very early on. So I know I've known that for a long time, um, which is, you know, obviously now a huge market, huge market, Um, you know, different. And so I just did a whole bunch of different kinds of sweaters for different clients. And I would be able to go into the meetings, the buyers would come in and and I would, you know, start, we sketched on the computer before illustrator and um, do all that. What program did you use? Prima vision. Prima Vision Cat. And actually, here's another like um, little tidbit. That's how I got my job is I had taken CAD classes in Kent, at Kent. I had this amazing teacher and I still don't, I, it must have been, I don't know if it was Prima Vision. I don't even know what he taught us on, but I had taken basic CAD, basic CAD is what it was called. And so when I got to Rawlsy, they had this Prima Vision um, system. It was a whole system that you would invest in at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, you could grab sweaters on it and you could draw flats that we know like illustrator flats now. And so because I knew basic CAD, I learned quickly how to do it. And that's, I think that's why they hired me full time because I mastered that computer system. Well, that's amazing because <laughs> now I'm crap at the computer, by the way, well, but <laughs> I, I will not get into my lack of, I have working knowledge, which <laughs> I recently realized is the way to put it when you don't, do it, but you know how to direct somebody to do it. So my whole resume. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's I mean, we are aging ourselves because I actually did not have the opportunity to take any sort of CAD class. And it's a long story, which I won't get into, but I've never taken a CAD class, period. Oh my gosh. See, I, I went back and took Illustrator um at FIT after one of my layoffs, because I realized I needed to understand it. So I did do that. But you know, if it's like anything, if you're not doing it every day, I mean, I'm okay at it. I I would say I have a working knowledge as well. Yeah. Um, But yeah, well, we didn't have the opportunity. It was that's what it was. There wasn't the opportunity. And then to be honest, I, for myself, I pretty much quickly advanced. And Mm, I was at the point. Yeah, I was at the point where that's not what my responsibility was. So that was the team that worked with me. But then here's the thing, like, this is something I've always been curious about asking, but Mm -hmm. 
I mean, when I teach now, obviously illustrator is, you know, it's non-negotiable. You have to be, you have to know it. You have to be good at it when you come out of school. However, in the last, I would say 10 years, I've kind of come up with a system, like with my assistant designers that would, I would hire right out of school. I do like a, like I call it a mashup. Like we always do our first sketches in pencil. I make them sketch in pencil. And then we put them into Illustrator as formal sketches because I had several students maybe 10 or 15 years ago that would come out of school and they would just be drawing on the computer. And it was so, I don't know, just they weren't, the sketches did not look right. The proportion was wrong. And now I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm kind of taking it back because I think uh, Procreate's changing all of that. Like on the iPad, Mm -hmm. that's actually fixing the problem that was existing before where we were standing on, you know, at MacBooks or, you know, iMacs and trying to draw with a mouse or even a stylus. Like it just wasn't, the, the line quality wasn't good. Yeah. There's not the same nuances that you have with hand sketch. Exactly. So, right. it'll, but I, again, like, you know, not every company has iPads for all the designers that can use Procreate. So my point is coming out, like, I think there's for everyone, there's still um, like a value in knowing how to draw, you know, doing those flats online, but also drawing by hand. You know, like being able to sketch freely and understanding proportion and all of that stuff is still really key. So I, I still think that's important. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that it's much easier to convey like movement and, and sort of a general proportion and style, to be honest, yeah. like through the absolutely. Hands. But I, but I mean, these, you know, programs, these computer programs and CADs, like they're just getting better and better as more people use it. So exactly. It's changing. It's changing in front of our eyes, but I'm not sure that the corporations are catching up with it. So that's, that's, that's the real challenge is they change so fast and students are really good at it, but I don't know that like even established corporations, they put so much money into this software. So like they can't do it fast enough. They can't catch up with it. How many years were you at Ralsey? Three years, three years. Okay. And then I left there to go to Liz Claiborne. Okay. Which was out of curiosity. Um, gosh, that's a good question. I was like 25 years old. You know, I think I was hungry. I think I saw um, people around me that were, I I remember being, (laughs) this is weird. Uh, People started to travel. Mm-hmm. People started to go on shopping trips, which I immediately gravitated towards as soon as I found out that existed. <laughs> and I found the people, there were certain people in the company that maybe were going and I thought I should go. I remember thinking that. Um, and so I started looking around and I found, and at, at Liz Claiborne, they were, they were, that was part of the, the, the lure is they had a really, um, at the time it was a huge sourcing program where you would, you know, everyone would go to Hong Kong, you know, back and forth a lot. And that was really the lure for me. And I remember when I started there, I think within six months of starting there, I went to Hong Kong for the first time. That's incredible. Yeah. It's also, I think travel is such an amazing experience, especially in your twenties when you oh design, because you're actually going to the factory and, it. and actually it gives you a greater understanding of how a garment is made, the machines that are used, and it informs you and helps you to actually be able to execute your vision when you have a greater understanding of how a garment is made. 
Right. In a knowledgeable way. Like once you, especially in the sweater world, you know, once you've seen knitting machines and how they operate and a linking machine, like, you know, we don't seem anything together in the sweater world. Right. So once you see how those needles are moving and how that works, it really informs, you know, how, the decisions that you're making as a designer, especially when you're in a world where most people are price challenges and um, all of that stuff. So really understanding how it's constructed and being able to challenge those ideas and to try to get your, your idea across um, in a knowledgeable way. That's the key. And for a sweater design perspective too, you're actually creating the fabric, yes. which is one of the big differentiating factors between like a sportswear designer, right? Where it's wovens and it's soft wovens, you know, structured wovens. Then also you can, you seam cut and sew knits. Yes, but sweaters is the only real design that you are creating the fabric and the design at the same time. Yes, which is one of the reasons I love it so much. I love and that. Thinking back to that, those days of my first job in New York, I had no idea any of this was happening and I fell really like ass backwards into it, but I fell in love with it really, really quickly. And I, I can honestly say that like, after all these years, I still love it. I love it. I love sweaters. Like it's, it's really, it's very nerdy to make that, to start with yarn or start with fiber and like make something. It's like, I think that's, that's where I get really excited. If you can't tell. <laughs> no, I love that. So you go to Liz Claiborne and oh. you are traveling, you're going to Hong Kong, you're going to the factories, you're sourcing. Yeah. What was that experience like and how long were you there? I, I think my first trip, it was a week and I just went to Hong Kong and back, which is surprising. We didn't go to China at the time. I don't think we went to any, you know, maybe we did. Maybe we did. I think I'm sure we drove across actually now that I'm thinking about it. Cause I remember just it being like this sensory experience of, you know, not only what you're talking about is, is meeting the people that you're working with every day and talking to them about construction and understanding how things are made uh, then from going, we did go to the fact, definitely going to the factories and seeing those knitting machines, but then also the culture of you go to the factory and then you have a lunch date and that lunch date lasts for an hour and a half and here's the food they're going to serve you. Um, um, you know, if you're in China, rural China and you're the guest of honor, I remember very specifically this first trip that had the VP of my company, she was the guest of honor. And so they served her, you know, a whole fish and she had to eat the eyeball. You know, like, <laughs> Pennsylvania, Ohio was like, what? This is amazing. Like just, just the, the culinary experience. That's what I remember from my fashion trips, which, which is very telling. <laughs> well, and it's so funny that you say that too, because I remember a trip to, I think we were just outside of Shanghai and we were sitting in one of those private rooms and it was yeah. a table that had a like a massive lazy Susan in the center yeah. and they would yeah. you know, put the food on the lazy Susan and and they you know offered me everything and I said yes to everything except I had to draw the line at chicken feet ah like I, I have tried chicken feet okay a couple times okay I don't well, like them but I, I don't even I don't even like fried chicken because of the bones <laughs> I'm kind of with you on that actually but back in the day, I was so curious about everything that I was like, you know, I would, I would try everything. I'm still notorious for that. 
Yeah, no, that's a that was a huge part of the trip, right? So I think, and then I got bit by that bug. So again, I think it's interesting talking to you. It's almost like a therapy session because I'm like, hey, <laughs> that's these are what I loved about you know I wanted to travel more, like that instinct of just discovering. First, it was New York City, and then beyond, and the world, and you know, different cultures and different ways of life and things. Again, I was just overly curious. I've always been curious. Yeah. I love that. And how long, sorry. So how long did you stay at Liz Claiborne? Oh, um, I think I was there. Uh, no, you know what? Actually it was less than a year because that is a, a, a bookend, so to speak. That was my first layoff. I was there for oh. a year and I got laid off. They, what was the reason? They closed the division or something happened. Okay. And that was tragic. That was my first experience with layoffs. How, did, many. how did you handle that? I was scared to death. Yeah. I mean, I was 20, God, I don't know, late, maybe 25. I don't know, 26. And, um, you know, I had student loans. I was living paycheck to paycheck. I didn't make that much money. Like I was in debt. So I freaked out, you know, um, but it ended up working out as it always does. Um, but no one told me that. That's, that's one thing I always try to tell my students is that expect layoffs in this industry. It just happens. But I didn't know that at the time. So I panicked, but I managed to piece it together. I got unemployment and I, um, I freelanced, I freelanced at Ralph Lauren, actually, I remember. Oh, that's um, and then that's when I was, it, it took me a couple months, but I was interviewing and that's when I um, ended up getting a job at Ann Taylor. Okay. So and that's how that happened. What was your title when you started working at Ann Taylor? Well, see, lucky enough, so I started in sweaters at Rawlsy. I was like an assistant sweater designer. We only did sweaters. When I went to Liz Claiborne, and maybe this was a draw for me too, my title was associate designer, which was a huge deal to get that title. Yeah. Um, and I did, I learned cut and sew knits and sweaters. So I was, even though I'd only done it for nine months or whatever it was, I had the knits and sweaters experience and the travel experience, which was huge. And so when I interviewed at Ann Taylor. It was a job, I think it was associate designer for cut and sew knits. Okay. At the time. Yeah. That's what my t- starting job was at Ann Taylor. Okay. And this is where our stories overlap because many years I, later. Yes, yes. Yes. My first job was at Ann Taylor and oh, that's I, right. I remember when you started. Yeah. <laughs> We won't go into that because <laughs> I remember all there's, <laughs> there's a previous episode where I do discuss how I was not a great assistant. So oh, seriously, I don't believe that. Yeah. I remember you as being a great assistant. I felt like the team's perspective of you was that you were a superstar. Oh, honestly, I remember that. I wish I knew that then. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should talk about that. That's part of it. That's part of the challenge. It will turn into my therapy session now. (laughs) You were. Well, I know that for a fact. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I will actually, I will, I will mention this story um, since you said that. And just to kind of explain a little. So the person that I worked for was tough. Oh, yes. And, and I, at the time, couldn't appreciate the toughness. And, um, and so in hindsight, I'm really glad that he was my first boss because I think it really prepared me. 
And it also was the first time that I stood up for myself. There was like something that had happened, but we had already been working together for like nine months. Mm -hmm. And I stood up for myself and it completely changed our dynamic and never really treated me the way that he had uh, treated me before. But the reason why the the story that I'll bring up is that it was my three month review and to, (laughs) to put it so crassly, he basically ripped me a new asshole. (laughs) He said he critiqued everything that I did. Didn't say anything nice. Um, told me that I'd be a, a good, um, I think trim designer someday. And it's like, well, as an assistant, that's all you really get to do is work on trim. That's but so horrible. So horrible. It makes me and really then, upset. And then finish this whole, <laughs> this whole like three month first review by saying, well, I don't want to end the meeting this way. So I will say that I appreciate that you're quiet and that you don't talk a lot. (laughs) I kid you not. And I went to the bathroom and I cried. And then I said, never again, am I going to cry over a job? Like this is, yeah. And I haven't. Are you serious? You've only cried once. I only cried that once. Wow. I'm so impressed. (laughs) Well, it's not worth it. It's like when you put too much stock into what somebody else says, like it's, it's not, it's not worth it. Like I knew that I was a passionate designer. I didn't know that I was a good designer at the time because I didn't do much designing as an assistant, but it was, it was like, how am no. It's like, I'm no, I'm not, I'm not here for that. I'm not going to sit here and be, be upset or take any of this like too seriously. Like, I think there's definitely times when like it, the feedback is like legitimate, right? And the feedback is there with the best purpose and the best intent to help you improve and help you get to that next level. But there was nothing in his commentary that was helpful. Right. So, I mean, I have so many thoughts about that. Number one is good for you to have the wherewithal at what were you 23 or something, right? Twenty-three. I didn't have that confidence. There's no way. I mean, I can tell you my last job, which was, you know, a year ago, I cried at my last year. Like (laughs) I'm not a crier, but I've definitely, I would say I I can count the number of times on one hand that I've cried, but I've had some crying episodes. Yeah. Like I'm, and, and I would love to be able to tell myself, oh, you're never going to cry at work again. I've definitely said that to myself, but it, I can't, <laughs> I can't hold that promise. Like it doesn't happen. I'm very wow. like, my emotions and my passion are too, they're, yeah, it's not good. They're at the surface. But then the second thing, like is one thing I wanted to talk to you about, like, as, again, putting my educator hat on, like that upsets me so much to hear that someone in that position did that to you and that it just upsets me. And and that's one of the things that I think is, is a problem that I've had and seen, you know, for a long time. And I just listened to, and I want to be smart about this. I listened to a podcast recently, Simon Sinek podcast. And I, I wish I knew the name. There was a, a wonderful man who was a head of a creative advertising agency 
And so they did this whole podcast on creatives, which you need to listen to if you haven't. And I was so inspired. I think I sent it to like so many people um, because he talks about this old culture of it's definitely patriarchy. It's definitely all of this stuff of like, and it's, it's, I think it's exactly what you experienced with your first boss and I've experienced where, why, why do people, why is their first thought to expect the worst? Like, yeah. why, why is it like, oh, you may, I'm going to test you. That's wrong. I feel like if I have the confidence to hire you, then it's my job as your manager to make you believe that you can do it. Like I should, it should be the, it's, it's really a paradigm of shift, so to speak. And I don't know why it just clicked to me to hear this and I'm probably, you know, butchering his words, but um, I'll find you the link. It, it's about setting people up for success. If someone comes into your job, especially as a creative, which we all know that some of us are more fragile emotionally than others, but if you walk in my door and sit, you know, it, as part of my team and I say, I know you're going to do a great job. You most likely are. Yeah. Whereas if I'm coming at you with the perspective of, um, oh, we'll see how it goes. I'm going to test you. I, I think that's wrong. I think that's part of this shift that needs to happen in corporate America where, you know, we have to, you know, I don't know bring people up just like in society we have to make have them believe that if i'm hiring you that is my trust in you like i'm making a pact with you now that if i'm hiring you that means i see something in you and it's my job to make sure that you rise to that occasion right well it's about empowerment right right it's knowing that that person can achieve that the case with my former boss is i think that I've had a little bit more of um, a compassionate standpoint in the sense that I think he was very frustrated. Yes. I think that he was, I don't want to say like, there's that saying like hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. And, and I think that it was a little bit more to do with him than me and my work. Oh, it absolutely was. I'll take it a step further for you because I know the people, you know, these people shall remain nameless, but you also learn behavior, right? So I can tell you as someone who knows this person and knows who this person worked for and their, the management style, if that management style is consistent throughout, like if you're, it's, and and we can talk about this too, but you know, there's this whole thing of like the carrot and the stick. Like some people are motivated by negativity. I've had people that work for me that actually are more productive if I'm more critical of them, which is I'm not like that at all. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not like that. I feel like creatives need to be in a happy space in order to be productive and and innovative. Yes, agreed. But there's a whole other part of the population that doesn't feel that way and that, you know, they teach. So I know for a fact in, in this case that like, there's kind of this strict different, it's, it's not a warm and fuzzy environment. It's a very like testing you, you know, kind of thing. And I've seen, I've seen it. It's, it's not pretty. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, I totally agree with you. It's not, it's not, his, it's not his fault. It's just, that's probably what he, I know that's what he learned. Totally. Else. And like, I also think it stems even farther back than that. I think it's how people were raised or their mm-hmm. learning environment. There's so many other factors that fall into play. 
Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, the big moral of the story is don't take things personally. You just yeah. never know what's going on with somebody else. So I think it was kind of subconsciously having that mentality that made me realize that spending time in the bathroom crying isn't serving me <laughs> and to not, not to bother with that anymore. I'm just blown away that you knew that when you were that young. Like that's, that's pretty, <laughs> that's amazing. Well, thank you for that. It took me years to figure that out. One of the things that I wanted to talk with you about when we're talking about Ann Taylor mm-hmm. is you were promoted like quite yeah, a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's a lot of people that struggle with that and knowing really like how to navigate that. Do you have any advice as to those who are working right now or want to advance in their careers? Well, honestly, I've been asked this question a lot. It's probably by students or, you know, um, it's a simple answer. It's just do good work. 90% 90% of the time, it sounds so simple, but I think we all get bogged down, especially in this culture with, you know, comparison and Instagram. And I, and the thing I hear the most of people that, you know, have worked with me for me or students is that you're always comparing yourself to someone else. Like most of the time, like I find assistants and associates, it's like, oh, my friend just got promoted at her job and we're, we've both been out of school for three years. And so you start comparing yourself to someone else. But I've found, I mean, this is a little bit Pollyanna, but if you just do good work, 90% of the time it gets recognized. And if it doesn't, then you're probably in the wrong spot. You know, if you're working hard, if you're showing up every day and you go out of your way to do, not just do your job, but do it well and show passion behind it. I, I can't, if people don't recognize that, you're definitely in the wrong place. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Does that make sense? No, that, that absolutely makes sense. I think that's, I, I love that that's your answer because that is the piece of the pie that you can actually control. Exactly. Because there's other factors. There's, you know, budgets, there's, um, you know, like sales. Like sometimes people get promotions because their product is selling, but it doesn't mean that you're not a good designer. Like, I, and I say this, I'm going to be more specific because that's very general. But like when you work on sweaters and cut and sew knits, they tend to be big volume drivers because it's, um, there's a little bit more of a universal fit when it comes to sweaters. It's more forgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be gifts at the holiday time. Like mm-hmm. it's a product that is widely used. Versus yeah. when I started at Ann Taylor, I did suits. <laughs> I so remember. It's very specific. It's all about fit. It's not everybody needs, you know, a hundred suits in their closet. They just want one or two, um, depending on their profession. They might want more, but it's not a volume driver. And so it doesn't get the kind of attention that other departments would get. Mm-hmm. So I love your advice. And I love that that is the take on it because it's the piece that you can control because you can't control all the other things. You just can't. Right. Bigger lesson too, is that if you're at a place where you're being recognized, then that should be confirmation that you're 
in the right spot. And if you're not being recognized, then it's, it's probably time to look somewhere else. Exactly. It sounds so simple, right? But in hindsight, I think that's my best answer. And I've certainly been in that circumstance where I haven't been promoted and thought I should be. And I've been in the circumstance where people have worked for me and think they should be promoted and shouldn't be. And then also when they have. Um, But that's always my advice. It's just, I think if you work hard and you have a smile on your face and you come and you're helpful, like 90% of the time people will recognize that you're going to stand out. I mean, especially when you're younger, you know, if you go, if you do more than what you're asked for, that's another big deal. Like, you know, when you get to be like at our level, it's a whole different thing. But when you're an assistant or associate and your boss says to you, like, Hey, I want you to sketch 50 versions of this V-neck. If you sketch 75, they're going to notice, you know, if, if that's, you know, if you really, really want it, then you have to do more than you're asked for. And someone, I hate when people say this, but some people, it's true. They say you have to be doing the job for like six months before you actually get it. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> I've also heard like dress for the next level that you want to be at. Like dress for the next, like literally dress for the next level. Yeah. Like oh, wow. embody it, like through oh. work, through your dress. Yeah. I think there's some truth to that. I, I, I would buy into 100%. that. 100% because you are judged within the first five seconds. And what are they judging you on? They're judging you on your appearance. Right. Especially like it's, it's, this is the, <laughs> this is the dark truth of the fashion industry. You are, you're judged on your appearance. You really Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Yeah. We could, I got a lot of stories about that. Yeah. I'm, I want to go back to what you had just mentioned about not getting promotions when you thought you did and more specifically having people report to you that wanted a promotion and you felt like they weren't ready for that promotion. Mm-hmm. What were some factors as to why you felt like somebody wasn't ready for a promotion? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm all about promoting at the right time. The only time it's ever really happened is maybe when I referred to before is I've had a couple of people come to me and say, Oh, my friend just got promoted at so-and-so after being there for two years. And I think I should be. I'm like, that's not a reason. Yeah. <laughs> that's not, that doesn't affect, I mean, good for you, but yeah. And good for them. Person, their promotion. <laughs> right. But I have very clear, I mean, again, I'm a corporate designer, so it's like very clear standards of the, the skills that someone should need at an assistant level at an associate level at a designer director, you know, the, at those levels, it's very, very clear to me. Yeah. that I can articulate usually what the person is doing or not doing. But more times than not, people have come to me and wanted to be promoted and I've actually agreed with them, but the people above me won't let that happen. Right. For most likely budgetary reasons, um, organizational reasons. And that's the hardest challenge. Like I had that a lot in my last job. I had probably two or three that were, have, including myself, you know, that were, ready for these promotions that everybody acknowledged they were, but we, they, the budget wasn't there. And that's really the struggle. Or like a series of unfortunate events where divisions were combined, yep. uh, new bosses. Yep. Exactly. But I still love working at a corporation I think for whatever, for many reasons, but. Yes. Yes. We share that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's, I like, there's a stability to it, but there's also, I love working with other people. Like I love collaborating. 
Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy that environment. Right. So, yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. And it's when you, you can't almost in a corporation, you have like a community of experts if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, you know, of people that are one person, like one team is really good at production and, and really good at product development and really good at design. And like, if you can all come together and create this product, it's amazing. Whereas when you're at a smaller place, you end up being the expert in everything. And as much as I'd like to think I'm the expert in everything, I'm not like there's things that I'm better at than others. So to have those expert, that panel of experts around you, I think it only helps you to make better things. So going back to Ann Taylor. So I was an associate designer of cut and sew knits at Ann Taylor. Mm -hmm. And at the time loft where we worked together was just a, um, an outlet store. Like it wasn't even a real like sister brand the way it is now. And Ann Taylor was, I was really fortunate to be there. It was like the late nineties and we were doing amazing. Like um, it was a great time to be in fashion. (laughs) There was a lot of money, a lot of bonuses, a lot of stuff going around. And um, so they decided to take this outlet brand and make it, what it or the make it the little sister, I guess we used to refer to it as. Yeah. And they, and when they did that, they promoted um, one of the VPs that was, that worked at Ann Taylor, they promoted her to be head of design for loft and yeah. they changed everything. And so I basically, I mean, I guess the short story is I followed her. Mm-hmm. So I was an associate designer of knits, but everyone knew that I knew sweaters and I worked in the sweater team and there was a sweater position and design available at loft underneath this person who I respected. Mm-hmm. And so I followed her to loft and several of my, my coworkers and friends did the same thing. I switched teams from Ann Taylor to loft. And I think, so I was the sweater design. Was I the sweater designer at loft when you came to loft or was I director then? I don't remember. Did you go from designer to director? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it was um, a year or two before that happened. Yeah. So then, because I remember you getting a promotion. How did your role change when you became a director? So at Ann Taylor at the time, it was really management. So and when I was a sweater designer, I was a sweater designer, and I think I had an assistant designer. I can't remember. Underneath me, it was one person. When I took over, when I became a director over Cut and Sew, it was two different, you know, quite large divisions, knits and sweaters. And I immediately like inherited, I don't know, three or four people. So that was the first time that I had to manage more than one person. Um, so that was really the big difference. And then, you know, we could go into lessons and, in, in, you know, learning to delegate, learning not to be a, knowing that you can't find everything yourself, <laughs> managing designers, which was a whole huge learning curve. It's, and it's probably one of the hardest things to do, I think. Oh my God, still it. Yeah. Learning to let go, you know, knowing that you can have the most talented teams, which I always, I was very lucky to have talented teams, but they're, those designers are never going to do it the way I would do it. So yeah. learning to let go of that, learning to say that, you know what, there might be another way that's just as good. I might not like it. It's not my personal preference, but it's still good. Exactly. Um, and manage that and learning to grow people because that was something I was always really passionate about. Um, because again, like, that those Ann Taylor days, I, I really worked for great people. I, and I had it kind of going back to that topic that we were talking about when you had the, it was the same company, unfortunately, where you had this negative experience, which turned out to be positive. It turned out to be very positive. I mean, I loved my next two bosses at, cause he left the company 
And right before he left the company, I did a lateral move and started working on refined separates. Amazing. Love to this day. Some of us moved right to loft together. Some of us like came a little later. I don't know. But that whole, that group was like, I like to say that's where I grew up in fashion. You know, that's where we really, we got to build this brand together um, with people I respected. I got to hire a great team and, you know, we built loft from this little outlet brand to, you know, this incredibly successful, eventually more successful than the Ann Taylor namesake at the time. Um, and I was so proud of it. Like it was, I was, it was really a moment of like, or several years actually of just like, we made money, we were doing well, we were doing what we love. There was a huge like culture of trust. And back to like what I was saying is like, I, I always felt empowered there. I always felt like when I walked in the door, they were like, Oh, Jackie's going to fix this. Jackie's going to design the next sweater that will sell a hundred thousand units. Like I never felt like someone was saying to me, are you sure you can do this? Like it was I might have had that doubt, but the people above me didn't share that doubt with me at all. If they thought that they never, I never felt that way. I always felt very encouraged and, and taken care of, which is something I miss, you know, a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know how lucky I was. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that you just never really know what you have until it's gone. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So you were at Ann Taylor for 10 years and Mm -hmm. how did that job end? Like, did you decide? Another layoff, unfortunately. Layoff. Yeah. So change in management business, you know, we had all those great years and then suddenly it it didn't, it wasn't doing so well. And um, the, the sad part about being a director, as I started to learn at that point is that when the higher up you are, the more likely you are like to kind of. uh, Be squeezed out. Yeah. Be squeezed out. That's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. So, so that's what happened to me. I got laid off for the second time. So then what did you do? So there was a little panic, I think. Um, but not nearly as much. I'd gone, it was a familiar place. Mm-hmm. I had paid off my student loans at that point. I had a little bit more money. I probably wasn't living paycheck to paycheck. Um, I was a little freaked out because I feel like that place was my identity. So it was like, where do I go next? You know, the, the, the whole, idea of having to do a portfolio is always daunting. I hadn't done one because I'd been so happy. Can we touch upon that? I Ugh. hate portfolios. I, I hate like, are they really relevant? It's like, I feel like, <laughs> it, I mean, because any company is going, most companies are going to ask you to do a project. I'm talking like small mom and pop, you know, boutique operations to corporations like they want to see what you're going to do for you for their company absolutely Um, and i understand that like a portfolio is kind of sometimes like an indication to taste level but Mm. when you're when you're doing this as a career a lot of times it's not about you and it and for like a portfolio to sort of be like the precursor judgment and as to whether or not you even get a phone call I just I don't know like I don't I don't believe in that because I think some people are really fantastic and they're just like eh, portfolio whatever and it, I, it uh, yeah I don't know how do you fix it that's the, the I agree I can I can argue both sides of this equation as the person who hates to like I have to do a portfolio now and it's like daunting like I hate it yeah um but then when I get into it, I find it like it. So I don't know what I'm what I'm complaining about. But then yeah. 
how do you fix it? I, I mean, and I do teach portfolio. So I teach the students, but I do think the idea, maybe, maybe our solution to this is the idea of a portfolio is changing. So for instance, when I'm, t- I'm teaching senior portfolio and I talk to the students about curating an Instagram, is that like cringeworthy or is that, how do you feel about that? I mean, I hate Instagram, but at the same time, I'm just, I mean, this is what, this is my Brene Brown moment. Okay. I hate to be seen. I would never, have, I'm learning so much about you today, Gwen. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I just. I would never have guessed that in a million years. Yeah. I don't like socially, of course, no, like I'm a social person, but to put myself out there for other people to like, and, and here's the other thing. I'm making a huge assumption that people are even spending time on my Instagram, that people give a shit for lack of a better word. (laughs) Like most people are so into their own stuff that they don't have time to sit here and judge me. They don't have time to sit here and like, look at my stuff. So in all reality, my hatred towards Instagram is not really founded on anything concrete, but, but I think it is an important tool, but I think at a young age, Instagram can be tricky. And so what, so I've been a critic for an FIT class um, Mm -hmm. this last spring semester Mm -hmm. and the topic came up and I told them, I'm like, have a private Instagram account and then have your professional Instagram account. Do not mix the two. I don't need to see you at the bar with your friends like I just don't. No, a total. And I say I preach the same thing. Maybe I need to reframe this. Let me start over. When I say curate an Instagram, I'm saying like if so. For instance, my senior students are working on their collection, and I'm like, you have these amazing cameras in your phones. Take pictures of every little detail of creating this collection. It's not about putting themselves out there and being seen, as you say. It's about curating imagery, right? Because that's what we do at the end of the day. We curate things. We curate ideas. We look at things. So if you're not the kind of person, you know, unfortunately, the way that the world exists right now in the interview process as to be a designer, I need something visual. And even as as a hiring manager or as someone who is, you know, wanting to be hired, I have to have some imagery that tells something about me. But that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be my face or how fabulous I am on a vacation. It means like, here are the things that I like. So my theory is this, like for students who aren't so, oh, I want to do these beautiful, I mean, they have to do portfolios in my class. So I figure they might as well just make them presentable. But I also encourage them to say, curate an Instagram of your senior year, making your garments. Like if you're at a museum, is there something inspiring? Like make, curate color stories, make something and then be able to send it to someone on LinkedIn and be like, hey, here's what I've been looking at lately. Because I don't know about you, but if someone sent me that, I'd be like, oh, that's really, I want to see what these, how these people think, how they curate. It says a lot about them. I'm really not interested in where they go on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not. Unless um, they go someplace fabulous, then I need to. <laughs> well, it's yes, that would, that would be jealous. But, yeah. but you know what I mean? So it's about like, we, ha- we have to, uh, what's the word? It's like, we have to have a calling card. We have to have something visual that people can sink their teeth in. And I'm talking with my hands right now for people who can't see me, like. <laughs> Like I want to touch, like as a designer, I want to touch a fabric. I want to like feel something. And so I do think the portfolio is annoying, but I don't know how I'm picturing myself on the other side of the spectrum back in the days when I was a full-time director and I was working 10 hours a day 
and the HR person calls me and I'm dying. I need somebody very fast. Like how else do I make split decisions? Like, you know, unless it's someone that, that a good friend referred to me, which we've, you know, had that in common. Like, I don't know how else to make, I need a split decision that says, Oh, what's going to make me want. And I, this is what I teach my students. It's what, what can you send them? That's going to want uh, them to want to meet you in person. You get one shot. So it could be the portfolio and most of the time it is, but are there other ways that you could communicate who you are? Totally. And I a hundred percent agree with you when you're starting out in your Mm -hmm. career. So this is a way for you to show your taste level, your skill set, all of that. I guess for me at this point, like I've been head of design, you know, it's, you know, it kind of been uh, gone as far as I could possibly, you know, I shouldn't say that you can always go farther, Um, but but I've gone pretty far. And at this point, I'm like, can't my resume, (laughs) like with, with the place that I've worked and like, you know, I was at Ralph Lauren for 10 years. Like, can't that be enough at a certain point? But (laughs) my point being is that I have an online portfolio, (laughs) but it's not necessarily indicative of what I'm capable of. It's just the work that I've done. So that's the big question, right? Like, that, and again, I'm putting my educator hat on. Like, so what would be a better representation for you? I mean, I would, would be a better representation for you to be able to, in a glimpse, here's who I am. I, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't and know the answer know to that either. What? Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. I feel like it's a case-by-case basis. So if... Yeah a job opportunity comes up that I'm really excited about and it's the level that I'm at, but it's maybe a product that I haven't worked on in years. Mm-hmm. I still feel that maybe a representation, I'm fine with doing a project, but I've also had like, you know, the horror story of you do this whole project and then you know, they ask like, oh, can you send it to me? And I'm like, sure, I'll send it to you in a PDF. And then no response. Yep. After yep. that. And I'm like, and this is after a couple interviews where it's, oh, a, yeah. it's almost, it seems like it's almost a done deal. Right. Yep. And I it's like a courtesy at this point, like, oh, well, you know, like it sounds like I kind of have the job. So what's the big deal of sending it? So exactly. I also get, yeah. So I also get really sensitive and, and I obviously maybe haven't worked through my, my <laughs> issues about that. In hindsight, like the only real takeaway that I can get is that, well, one, I don't want to work with somebody like that period. So that's a bullet dodged. But then second of all, I think there was a little bit of an air of desperation that came off because of all the work I created the entire collection I like here's the collection and so it was just it was a lot it was a lot of work and I think I did too much Mm -hmm. and um yeah so yeah that's something I wish we could change about the industry but I don't have a solution I mean the only other thing I think when I'm hearing you talk about and tell the story and I relate to it it's happened to me so many times and I can add to you to that like I've had situations where the exact same thing has happened where I've gotten like, you know, done these huge projects, gotten to like 
the level of, you know, the, like you said, the CEO and then, then like crickets, nothing. And it's usually like, it, usually if you've met with like six people at that point, you're like, Oh, I've got, it should be okay. And yeah. then you write to the HR person and nothing. And they won't even tell you what happened. Like, and then you still don't know, but I've always tried. That's my lesson that I took away from that years ago is that I never do a project that I wouldn't want to put in my portfolio that represents me. So I always try to do something that like, Maybe it's got like a, you know, let's use Ralph Lauren because that's easy and we've all, we've been there. Mm-hmm. Like, Ralph Lauren can be a lot of things to a lot of people. So as long as it looks like Jackie for Ralph Lauren, mm-hmm. then I would never pawn it off as like, some people just do these beautiful projects for these companies and they're like, here's my project for Ralph Lauren. Like I wouldn't do that. I would do an amazing project and then I'd be like, here's a group I designed because <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming that I might not get the job. And so I'm going to do the work for myself. Totally. That's, that hasn't always worked, <laughs> but that's my method of like, I don't like to do things at this age for other people. Like I always have to have some kind of like, um, like if I'm in it and I'm doing it for me, I actually yeah. like doing it better. Yeah. And, and if it's something I can take with me, then I feel even better about it. But I think like, yeah, I think if you can crack this code and I'm, I'm going to tune into your podcast to try <laughs> to listen to how, what people are saying, because I don't know what what the answer is like about the portfolios and it it really is daunting one of the the pieces of advice that i gave to you know students before um and this doesn't help like for all our fellow you know creatives out there that are you know still navigating and figuring it out um but if you can kind of adjust and tailor your portfolio to the company that you really want to get hired at absolutely because there is this, you know, there's a saying that it's like, oh, it's like the college design project and where there's something that's just a little bit um, not realistic, right? And not commercial. Correct. And that's, you know, of course, if you're, you know, you're an avant-garde designer and you really want to do your own thing or you want um, to work for a really niche small boutique operation, then mm-hmm. by all means, like that's not the avenue that your portfolio needs to be anyway. But if you're wanting like more of a corporate job, um, something that's a little bit of a larger company and the product tends to be in the big box stores, right? Or they have a direct to consumer and you can really see what the product is, then the portfolio should probably reflect that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what we do in our senior portfolio classes is like they have usually three projects a semester and the goal is to get them out of, you know, they're, they're, they're exiting school with a portfolio that's actually interviewable, if that's a word. (laughs) And I like to try to keep, like, make sure that that those two blend somehow so that there's an aesthetic like that they have that's consistent because that's important too, right? You don't want to like have this, you know, a lot of students love to do bridal. So you don't want to have this like crazy bridal portfolio. And then suddenly you turn around and then I'll use Ralph Lauren again. Like, Oh, it's plaid shirts. Like that doesn't really match. Like, yeah, you can make it match. That's possible. But like the point is that the aesthetic needs to be there. You can have a plaid shirt tucked into a ball gown skirt. (laughs) And that can be your look. If you're getting married on the ranch and tell your ride, which is, there you go. It's RL branches. I like that. Yes. So, um, well, that's styling too. That's a whole other <laughs> area of yes. design. So, 
which I love. So we've been talking like little bits and pieces throughout our conversation here about your teaching. Mm-hmm. And I would love to know how you became a teacher, how you became an instructor at Kent State. Oh, okay. Um, so when I was working at Ralph Lauren, I got an email from someone, at the director at Kent at the time, and I'd been out of school for a long time, asking me to be a judge or a critic for the senior collections. And I was so excited because I hadn't been back to Kent. I love Kent State. And I haven't been back there in a long time. And they said, oh, well, you know, please come out. We want you to, it's two, it's two days worth of critiques. And then we'll, you'll come to the fashion show. And I was just like, I was very removed from the program. So um, to be asked to come back was exciting. And I still remember, I mean, I went back and it was such an awesome experience. And you probably had the same thing. You said you were a critic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as someone who'd probably, you know, who'd been working in the industry for 20 years and had ups and downs and had good days and bad um, to be asked to kind of look at student work. um, It was just a whole other thing for me. It just opened up something in me that I was really, really excited about and didn't want to leave. And so from, I spent two days and I felt like connected to the school, connected to the students, um, really energized myself. I feel like they might've learned, but I learned so much more. Um, I found that I love to be around younger people, (laughs) um, the way they think, you know, there's definitely generation gaps and, and that's exciting to me because this generation of, I can go on and on and on about this generation of designers and what they're bringing to the table that, that we didn't even think about 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, and it really energized me and kind of made me love fashion again. Cause I think at that time I was like, I like it. It's fine. It's a job, but it wasn't like the kind of excitement that I had when maybe I was 22 and just got out of the car in New York city. Like I didn't have that excitement about work as I still loved it. I'm not going to say that I didn't, but there were moments. So I started as a critic and then year after year, they kept asking me to come back as a critic and I loved it. And then, um, I guess, I don't know when this happened, but Kent state actually opened a studio in New York city. I don't know how long ago, 10 years ago. And, uh, one of my friends ended up running the studio or being head of the director of the studio and I, I was becoming more and more involved in Kent State and working with students through that critique process. And I would spend more time, you know, at events they had at the studio. And then eventually she asked me to teach um, while I was working full time. So I would teach one class a semester at the, stu- the Kent State studio. And, um, and that's how it started. I love that. So, and again, it was, it's, I love, I still, to this day, I love it. I love it. It's so fulfilling to like, to, you know, see what's happening with the students. I'm going to talk about a controversial topic, potentially, where I question if the programs in these design universities, if they're really preparing you to know how to design like the real world fashion design, Mm -hmm. because in my limited experience at FIT, because I was only there for a year, and with being a critic for one of the FIT classes, the fashion design class this last spring, there's a lot of emphasis on the pattern making and the sewing and making the garments. But I felt like 
like that's that's so not what you're doing when <laughs> you when you start off as an assistant designer. Mm-hmm. But it's all skill sets that you do sort of build, and I appreciated that at your not only your internship, but when you're an assistant designer, that you learned on the job. Yeah, and I just feel like there's this sort of like lack of like a real world. This is what you need to be doing as an assistant designer. Hmm. It's not a fair assessment. I will full on say that, but I just. It's like, what are we really preparing them for? Right. I mean, I can tell you, like, there's a lot of conversation about that in the education world. I know that, and I'm just an adjunct professor, so I'm not privy to all of it. And I certainly, I can only speak to Kent because that's where I, you know, I teach. But that's what I love about Kent is that, that, that New York City experience that I never had. We, we take, you know, students have to do and travel abroad, they call it. <laughs> and one abroad is New York City from Ohio, which is kind of funny. Um, but they spend a semester in that. And it's really, it's like people like me or you, you know, really real world people who are working in the industry teaching them. And I, I like to think that that makes a difference. I mean, I like to think that that's what I bring to the table is every class I, you know, I've t- I taught freshmen this semester, which was a whole other thing. Um, but really speaking to like what you, I had a curriculum, I had a syllabus of all the things I had to teach, but every week I would bring a real world experience to that teach in, in freshman, in the case of freshman design students, having them understand what a professional presentation is, like how to crop photos properly, how to, you know, export a PDF, how to, you know, just very, very basic things, teaching them early on. That's what I try to do. So I can only speak to my experience with my students, but I, I definitely see what you're saying. And I, I think it's really hard because you have these programs, they're a business at the end of the day. Yeah. And they're trying to get enrollment and they're trying to steal it from other schools and they're trying to churn out, you know, as many students as they can. And I think sometimes people get lost in the shuffle. Like, unlike we go back to what I said earlier is I was in a class of 13 people, you know, so maybe that was, I was lucky in the sense that I got a lot of hands-on work, but when you're in a large school and you're in, I think even Kent is graduating a hundred design students a year now. Oh, wow. Lost in the shuffle. And, um, you know, it just depends on, on what you want to focus on because it's hard. Like, I think some students are like, I'm, I'm so like you. I I think I was supposed to do a a sewing demonstration this semester. I'm like, I can't do it guys. I haven't sewn since the last time I was in this building, which was 30 years ago. So I'm going to tell you how to sew it, but I'm not demonstrating how to sew it. So I don't even know how I got through school, to be honest with you, because I, I just was not a good sewer. Um, but then some students are, that's what they want to do. And so you have to encourage them. It's trying to find each person's, you know, passion, if you will. I don't necessarily believe in that word, but if finding what they're good at, what they like to do, some of them like to draw, you know, some of them like to draw by hand, some of them like to paint, some of them like, and it's my goal as a professor is to find, try to tap into what that is. And it goes back to what we said, even 30 years later is what do I love to do and how do I represent that in a portfolio for myself? So I think when you're trying to do that's just what my method is. That's not something I learned or (laughs) was taught through teaching, but I think that's important to try to, you know, have every person, everyone be authentic Mm -hmm. to who they are and what, what they love to do and try to push that across. There's no class on like, Hey, this is 
you know, these are all the positions in the company and these are how they work together. And this is how we put together a collection. This, these are the steps, like this is what, this is the skill set of an assistant designer. This is a skill set of the designer, the director. This is really the main responsibility as the creative director there, you know, none of that's really kind of broken down. And in one way, I don't mind that because I think everybody should forge their own path and make their role what they want it to be within what works best for the team. But it's also like, I just, I think that there's such like a dropout rate um, in the industry. Mm -hmm. And I feel like part of it is disappointment from unrealistic expectations especially thinking that you're going to be a designer like straight out of the gate right. and realizing that an assistant job is literally an assistant job. Yeah. There's a lot and, of to say. Yeah. And it's like, and you're, you're high on college, right? Like you're high on like yeah. you got to be so creative and you had a fashion show and you, you had a critic and, and everybody, but then, it's like the real world steps in and they, and they have internships, but internships aren't the same as an assistant designer position. Like you get right. to be the observer for the most part. Right. And a participant in a limited capacity. To be controversial, to use your words. Um, I used to say that sometimes I would, I would interview students from, I won't name the schools, but you know, if you needed someone to like, be an illustrator, they'd be amazing. Mm-hmm. But I, I would even say like, <laughs> this, is, this is very controversial. You, if you want to lock them in the closet and let them draw all day, amazing. They're amazing. But you need to be able to like speak your mind and have an opinion and be able to communicate with, you know, like what we were saying, the product development person, the production person, the merchandiser, you know, you can be the most talented person, but if you can't communicate if you don't understand how business works, like if you're not cut out for the corporate world. And I don't know that all the fashion programs are training those people. You had mentioned that during your classes, you try to infuse a little bit of a real world story or an example. What is an example? What is an example of one of the stories that you've told your students? Um, there are a lot actually. So like I said, I was teaching freshmen for the first time and it's what was called fashion visual. So, you know, again, I learned a lot in this class because I had to go back and it's principles of design, elements of design, harmony, unity, space, like, and you and I know all of them, but like, if if I were to quiz you right now on them, you might not (laughs) like it. So it was a great pressure of like, but no, it was great for me because I'm like, I realized, and, and as a photographer, as someone who's trying to be a photographer, I should say, um, I use all of those principles in my head. I just don't necessarily name them. Like, because if you're a visual person, if you're creating things on a daily basis, you, you're you trained to do that. So to go right. back to the beginning, it's, yeah. it's really interesting to learn. What I try to do every single class with my freshmen is bring real world examples of things. So we would do a lot where we basically fashion visuals is like how to do exactly what we've been talking about the whole time is how to convey imagery without talking about it, without, um, without words. Yeah. And so we kind of worked our way up to the end of the semester. We started doing just very basic like elements of design and then worked our way up to 
um, mood boards and color palettes and how to create those and how, to, how do they look professional. So I would bring examples of things, either my portfolio or in, in, I would bring pictures of rig walls from Ralph Lauren that were old yeah. of how we curated um, styling images, um, what, a, what a inspiration board or a mood board would look like every season for us. Um, and I have merchandising and design students in fresh, the freshman courses. So I would bring merchandising boards. Mm -hmm. Like, here's why you need to learn these things. And that was just my class. I'm not, it, that's not something that I had to do on the syllabus, but I was very in, kind of bit, speaking back to, that's the beauty of someone coming from the industry and teaching as opposed to someone that's maybe been through years and years of school and not, had not worked in the industry. I'm, I'm always trying to put practical applications to the lessons that we're learning. Um, the other example that I love that I, I, I was, I had so much fun with as we were doing, they had to pick out elements in advertising. Like I pulled out the Tiffany's ad, which I love the whole Beyonce and mm -hmm. Jay-Z Tiffany's ad yeah, and talked about, you know, how, what are they communicating? Cause there was very little font. There was not, it, the magazine ad had no Tiffany's writing and didn't have anything. And that was a really fun class to teach because it was again, an, a practical application of like, here's a, here's a brand that's trying to re, brand itself so to speak or, or, or reach out to people that they hadn't and is it working is it and it was amazing to hear from 19 and 20 year olds that it was they loved that jay-z and beyonce ad so not just saying oh find some random ad from a magazine but like here no here's an ad that people are talking talking about now yeah. um, i tried to keep it really like we would you know even in i the things I taught my freshmen were like, we, we have to spend the first 15 minutes of, of class talking about fashion, what's happening in fashion. What did Harry Styles wear to his concert last night? That's all valid. And they love to talk about that. Well, and what's interesting is there's two other fields that sort of come into play here too. Styling, number mm. one, and then also costume design. Yes. Stylists are costume designers. Yes. And it's, and especially like in the case of Harry Styles, like there's, there's someone or there's a team behind those looks and it's a collaboration and it's how he wants to represent himself, how he wants to push the envelope, yes. how he wants to create sort of a new norm, right? Or a new narrative. And I think it's, you know, fascinating, but that's kind of my goal with this podcast is to talk about like the different areas of design, but then also the different fields that are related. Um, Cause I know so many people that have pivoted as well. Absolutely. And I think your, your timing is impeccable if you don't mind me saying, because that's kind of what I'm thinking, you know, as a professor and as a realist, when we were in school, when I was in school, <clears throat> You, you were trained to be a designer and you were going to work at a company as an assistant designer and then you'd move to associate and there was a path, right? Yeah. And that path isn't, there is still that path. That's a possibility, but I don't know that there's, I don't know that that path is getting any larger. I think it's shrinking. Yeah. Right? And so I'm trying, you know, this is again in my own head, not necessarily in my school, but trying to find other or expose them to other things. And so that's where your podcast can really take off is like, you know, to your point, we talk about styling, we talk about product development, which I think is a huge, huge open path for people, you yeah. know, and that, um, learning how to really develop clothing and product and lifestyle branding is a huge thing. So you, and, and if you think about it, you know, this, there isn't really a program for lifestyle design, 
No. So they hire fashion designers. So that's, again, going back to when I was saying curate your Instagram. If you love interiors, if you you can put clothes with the pillows. With the, I know so many people, I'm sure you do too, who have left fashion and they're doing amazing jobs designing like, you know, interior, not, not interior design, but um, soft goods, home yeah. goods. They've made that transition into home and that's a lucrative business right now. That's what people want because we're in our homes. Well, especially if you have textiles and textiles, print design. Yeah, print, yeah. Exactly. There's so many things and styling is a, is a big um, component. What else? Like just opening their minds to the idea that it's not, it's not a linear path, right? You, and there's people that aspire to be um, influencers. <laughs> if that's what you want to do, like there's money in it. So, and you have to have a fashion background around that. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you had mentioned it um, about the different path and it not everything being so linear or, you know, homogenous, right? Right. Because I had posted, and I really debated on posting this, but I'm like, well, I'm starting this podcast and it's going to be about careers in fashion and the different avenues. I posted about Virgil Abloh. Oh, I saw that. Oh, you saw that. And it was great, Gwen. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. And I was, you know, I'm like, I don't know him. I know people that know him, but I don't know him. And his story is absolutely incredible to me. And it's so inspiring. And I'm like, if I, through the interviews and the people that I know, can actually inspire somebody and show them a way to realize their own dreams, like then I feel like my job has been done. I have just a couple more questions. I really want to know what is the best advice that you've received for your career, or it could be personal too. And then I'd also love to know what you think is the best advice that you've given to your students or somebody that's reported to you. Ooh, that's a hard one. I wish I had known when I was, you know, interviewing those for those first jobs that I was interviewing that person as much as they were interviewing me. And it's hard to feel that way when you're 19 or 20, 21 You've got $50,000 worth of debt. You've just moved to a new city. You don't really have, you, you feel like you have no power. And sometimes you have to take those jobs where you don't, you know, they're not the right ones. But if you can, if you can really get in a position where you can try to interview the person that's interviewing you and make sure that it's someone that you connect with, because you're going to be spending more time with these people than you do your husband or partner or whoever you're with. Roommates, friends, yeah. Anybody. These are the people you're spending all your time with. And if you, so if you, and in my case, I think I was, I, I didn't necessarily do that consciously, but I got so lucky in finding the right people to work for that really nurtured me and believed in me. And I guess I would like in a, in an optimistic way is like, it was a mirror. It's like, I knew I had it in myself. I felt like I was talented. I knew I could do it, but then they would mirror that back to me and say, we know you're in the right place. You're going to do great because you know, I've had the opposite where you're working for people that is just a, you knew it in the interview, right? Like you knew in the interview, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be hard. And it just can, and you know, you know what you need as a person. It's almost like dating. I tell my students that too. It's like dating. 
right? A hundred percent. Where yes. you can tell when someone's crazy and there are a lot of crazy people in this industry and I might be one of them sometimes, but you know, like I need someone that's, that's going to support me yeah. and, and nurture my talents. And also, I mean, the other thing is like someone that find someone that I can look up to. Like I struggle, I'm struggling with that now. I don't know about you. I want a mentor. I've been wanting a, a really good mentor for like 10 years. Like I used to have them back in the day yeah. and I have them still, but I mean like someone at, in a work environment that I, I actually want to be. Absolutely. I, I think that is really awesome advice. And I think it's so key to have a mentor. Mm -hmm. um, but going back to what you were saying before, it is like dating, but I think the big thing to take away is that if it's not a right fit, it's not a right fit. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your talent or anything else. It's just that it's not going to work for both. And you absolutely should be interviewing them just as much as they are interviewing you. Yeah. So I think that's very well said. So Jackie, I want to know, what are you doing now? In addition to teaching, I also uh, run a blog with my boyfriend who is a chef and we kind of started it on a whim, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, just as a side project that we did together because we didn't live in the same city. But then when COVID happened, he came and picked me up, rescued me from New York and I've been in Pittsburgh ever since. And now we're kind of trying to make this work full time. So it's called Superman Cooks. And he makes this amazing food that's that looks amazing, but is really not difficult to make. He's fantastic. And I take the photos. So we started out as a blog and now we're on Instagram at Superman Cooks. Uh, we're on Facebook, all that good stuff. But it's been so much fun during this time because we've started to work with a lot of um, food and beverage brands. So we partner with wine. We do wine pairings for um, some, some popular wines in um, California. We work with Bob's Red Mill, um, lots of different, different brands that I'm doing. And I, we do recipe development and food photography for them. So I'm not sure what it's gonna turn out as, but I'm enjoying the ride. It's super fun. Even before COVID happened, it really, I discovered a passion for photography, which again, like we were talking, we've been talking about the whole time. It's like creativity is everywhere. So I never knew that I had that. And I've really become passionate about photographing food, which is a whole other thing, but it employs all of the skills that, that, you know, I learned in design school and learned throughout the industry. So it's been super fun um, to kind of, and it definitely um, sparks joy for me I would say to create imagery to, to create meaningful imagery to curate things like I've kept saying like it's all the same part of my brain that's working and it's firing and I find it really rewarding and I follow you so it's thank you it's absolutely incredible so I highly recommend for anybody listening to follow at Superman Cooks yes thank you last question that I like to ask everybody that I have a chat with what is your favorite movie for fashion? Unzipped. <gasps> Unzipped. Oh my Absolutely. gosh. Well, I, okay. So I have, I'm really passionate about this because I love, I worked for Isaac yes. for two years right. and it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. I love him. I drink the Isaac Kool-Aid all day long. <laughs> he is the real thing. If I could work for him again, I would do it in a heartbeat. He's probably one of the most creative, interesting, 
individuals I've ever met. Um, and I literally sat, you know, 10 feet from his office and he was very engaged in the, in the creative process. And he was so inspiring. Talk about a mentor, right? Yes. He just was so engaging all the time. Um, and so I had seen that movie in the movie theater before I started working for him. And I, you know, I was always like, this is amazing. It's so cool to see behind the scenes and, and really, and really behind the scenes in terms of how he feels as he's putting on a show. Mm -hmm. Um, so then when I started working for him, it's real. Like it's to see that, you know, like, so I, I love it even more now. Like I, it's, and my friends and I quote it, <laughs> you know, all the time. So I, I that's an easy answer. Well, that's but a much cheeker. <laughs> I quote Zoolander often. What's your answer to that question? Um, I'm such a movie buff and I just love fashion so much that it really, it varies, but I will say today that it's, um, the Thomas crown affair, but the second one. Oh, that's a good one. So, and, oh yeah. That's uh, a good one. Yeah. And then I found out that my good friend, a neighbor was actually, um, the PR person that placed some of the clothing. No way. And was a dresser on the film. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's so crazy. I'm like, tell me everything. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but it well, was classic and it was, you know, it's what well, is that was a moment. Six and it was like the turn of the, I mean, like the nineties was like a whole mix, right? You have the grunge, you have um like the Calvin Klein, very sort of, you know, clean minimalism. Mm -hmm. But there was something that was just like sexy and classic. And I felt like it was such a modern take on. I feel like I have a, now I have a couple honorable mentions that I have to bring up. Okay. Because you said that yeah. um, the best thing I've watched, like in the last year, did you see the uh, Martin Margiela documentary? Oh, yeah. Oh, you, um, you know what? I watched it like, cause I belong to film. I'm, I'm a nerd, like a movie nerd, but I belong to film forum. So I like bought it like, because mm -hmm. I love him so much. You have to see it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I tell my students that all the time too. Like I give them extra credit for, cause the Antwerp six is or Antwerp six or seven. I always forget six, six. Yeah. Yeah. Six. That's my jam. Like that's where I live in fashion history. Like that's how I will, I will always love Margiela. I will always love like the tabby toe. That's yeah. the jam. So, and students are interested in it too, but that's, that would be my, my next. Okay. Thing. Well, I have to, I have to watch it. I've not seen it. You have to see it. It's so great. And it just, it's just so interesting. But again, it goes back to what you were saying about Virgil Abloh. Like talk about all of these people, him, him, Raph Simmons, like they, some of them don't have traditional fashion backgrounds, but it's about studying art, loving art. It makes me feel, you know, validated, yeah. I guess. Absolutely. Um, and so that's like a really perfect full circle, like moment where you yeah. started off saying that sometimes you didn't quite feel like valid because you didn't have that passion to like sew and like draw clothes. But it doesn't mean that that's any indication as to your success or your trajectory or what's going to find you. Absolutely. The only other thing that's on my mind that I feel that I have to share with you, maybe off the is the Beatles documentary. <laughs> it's on Apple Plus. Okay. I think it's not a fashion movie, but all of, like, I'm literally calling my friends and telling them about it because it should be. Like the way that they look is so stinking cute. They're wearing like 
it's a moment that's that's I mean, that's not a fashion movie at all but like i was obsessed with the fashion because I it's like it's, rock and roll music yeah entertainment movie. like it's all interconnected it's art yeah. right it's art it's style it's all interconnected yeah, it's we keep saying yeah, I mean, you have to watch it. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a long commitment. It's like nine hours and you can't, I couldn't watch it all in one session, but as a creative person, it's so, you literally have a bird's eye view of watching the Beatles write the most famous songs you've ever heard and mm-hmm. how they're struggling to write it and how they're struggling as a group of, you know, it's very similar to all the things we've been talking about, like working as a team. Mm-hmm. I mean, but then as an aside, they're so stinking cute. Paul McCartney is like in a beard and like floppy hair and they all wear vests. Like I was talking to my friends about, it. I'm like, bring the three piece suit back because it's like, and it is back, but is they're wearing little vests with half sleeve Henleys all the time, like to the yeah. studio and the way they look. And then of course, George Harrison like brings it. He's got like a pilgrim hat on at one point with a big bow. <laughs> I'm just like, I love the fashion in this movie. I didn't intend to love it, but it's so good. The way that Peter Jackson put it together and shot it, I mean, it's it's 50 years old, this footage, but it really looks like it's maybe five years old. Like, it's so well done. So Incredible. you should watch it. I want to hear okay. On my list. Jackie, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so wonderful getting to talk to you. And you have so many, like, wonderful pieces of advice and your take on it and your perspective. And I'm just so grateful that you took the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you so much. It was so much fun to catch up with you. Yes. And we'll have to do it again soon, but with drinks. I love that. I want to thank Jackie for her genuineness and sharing her unique perspective of both working in the industry and educating the next generation. The takeaways I had from our conversation are, one, make the opportunities for yourself, like continuing your education. Two, we have to set people up for success and support those to achieve. If you are a hiring manager, make them believe that they can do the job that you saw them fit to do. Three, do good work, show up, be available and helpful, and take the opportunities to go above and beyond. As Jackie said, 90% of the time you'll get recognized and rewarded. And if you aren't getting noticed, then you are probably at the wrong place and it's time to think about the next. Four, curating can be a part of your creative process as well as cultivating those research and presentation skills. Five, do the work for yourself, especially when working on projects for a job, create something that you would want in your portfolio. Six, as a manager, learn to let go and accept that others will always do things differently. It may or may not be better, so remain open to the different perspective and definitely build trust. And seven, When interviewing, remember that you are interviewing them just as much as they are interviewing you and make that connection since you are spending the majority of your time with them. It needs to be the right fit for you too. Thanks again to Jackie for all of her insights that she shared with us today. To contact Jackie, either DM her on Instagram at supermancooks or email her using jackie at supermancooks.com. For more information on Superman Cooks, you can go to their website, which is just www.supermancooks.com. And as always, there are links for the content of this episode, like the Kent State Fashion Program, in the show notes on the website, thefashionablejourney.com. Thank you again for listening, and I hope this was inspirational and wishing you a wonderful day. Mm 
Thank you for listening to the Fashionable Journey podcast. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to join us and I hope you had fun. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and feel free to share with others. If you really love the show, let me know by leaving a five-star review. To get in touch with me, please DM me on Instagram at The Fashionable Journey. And if interested in the show notes or in my career coaching services, please go to the website, which is thefashionablejourney.com for more information. Please join us next time. And until then, I'm wishing you all the magic and joy while navigating life and fashion with style.